Hello and welcome to Africa Inc, where we'll be delving into just some of the business news that made headlines on the continent over the past week. Well, all eyes were on the African Union's 10th Heads of State Summit this week, where the Continental Free Trade Agreement was put into motion. It seeks to boost intra-Africa trade and deepen economic integration to create more competitive economies. 44 states have already jumped on board what will be the world's largest free trade zone. And Albert Muchanga, who's the AU's Commissioner for Trade, will be joining us on the line from Rwanda to chat about how this could be a game-changer for African economies. Zambia, in the meantime, is amongst the latest of countries to declare a clampdown on its mining sector. It slapped Canada's first quantum with an $8 billion tax bill and has vowed to run audits on mining operations that could affect the units of Glencore and Vedanta. So we take a closer look at the extent to which the trend of governments wanting more from their mineral resources Sources, threatens the sustainability of industry across the board. Claude Basic, who's managing director at Unomix, will be joining us for that conversation. And we bring you your weekly markets analysis with Ali Khan Sachu, CEO of Rich Management as well, putting Equity Bank in the spotlight as it backed the trend set by its peers in Kenya, recording a rise in profitability. But first, it's over to Bronwyn now with the news. Thanks, Alicia. Well, Sun International is leaning on its shareholders to reduce debt. The hotel and entertainment group has declared that it won't be paying a full-year dividend. This comes as the firm's interest bill jumped 15% during the period and contributed to it falling to a net loss of almost $1 million. Sun International has also announced a rights issue where it hopes it can raise over $124 million, a move that will further help the group de-risk its balance sheet. Sun International operates in seven African countries as well as Latin America. Uncertainty regarding South Africa's mining charter could soon come to an end. That's after the country's new Mineral Resources Minister, Gwede Mantashe, vowed to table the charter before the end of June this year. The charter stipulates transformation targets for the industry. Mantashe set up two task teams that are due to report back in three weeks' time. The draft will then be presented to mining provinces for community participation as well as the industry for feedback. The country's mining sector has been shrouded in uncertainty after Mantashe's predecessor tabled a code line last year without industry consultation. Zambia has added a new mobile operator to its network. The country's communications regulator has granted a unit of Dutch company Unitel with a license to operate in the country. Unitel will be investing over $350 million in the country through its subsidiary UZI Zambia. The move will see Zambia welcome a fourth mobile operator and comes after the country approved a law last year aimed at boosting competition in the sector by allowing more providers to enter the market. Zambia's mobile space is currently dominated by South Africa's MTN, India's Bharti Airtel and its state-owned operator Zamtel. Equity Bank's managed to double its rate of profit growth for 2017. That has a strong performance by its regional businesses helped offset some pressure seen in Kenya. It's reported an 8% rise in annual pre-tax profit to just over $266 million. The lender says its subsidiaries, which operate in Uganda, Tanzania and DRC, contributed 14% to that growth. And it expects that earnings contribution to hit 20 to 25% next year, as those countries' economic outlooks improve. The bank says slowing GDP GDP growth in Kenya and a lending cap weighed on margins. Its net interest margin declined to 8.5% last year from 11.6% previously. 
Zimbabwe's new president has declared that the country is open for business and companies aren't wasting any time to take him up on that promise. Cyprus-based Caro Resources has announced that it will spend $4.2 billion on a new platinum project in Zimbabwe, making it the largest deal to date in the country's mining industry. Zimbabwe's mines minister says at full capacity, the project will produce 1.4 million tons of PGMs annually, which could make Caro the country's largest platinum miner by 2023. Canada's first quantum has been slapped with a $7.9 billion tax bill by Zambia, but the company is hoping to negotiate the matter. First Quantum CEO says the country's tax collector has made hefty tax assessments in the past, but has settled for a significantly reduced amount. And according to Bloomberg, Zambia's president, Edgar Lungu, has commented on the situation as well and called for a swift resolution. The tax bill relates to mining equipment imports of about $540 million and is equivalent to over 60% of First Quantum market cap. That's a quick look at what's been making headlines across the continent. Alicia, it's back to you. The AU has committed to setting up the world's largest free trade zone in Africa. And straight after the break, we interrogate the viability of the plans it has on the table. So don't go away. Intra-Africa trade sits at a mere 16%, but governments are now working together to set up a continental free trade zone to deepen economic integration and leverage off each other's growth in order to take that percentage higher. The continent free trade agreement signed by 44 nations this week will span over 55 member states with an estimated population of 1.2 billion people and a combined GDP of around $3.4 trillion. And it's looking to free up trade barriers, including the scrapping of tariffs on over 90% of goods. But while a fully-fledged free trade zone could see Africa become more globally competitive, a few obstacles still remain. So joining me on the line now from Kigali is the African Union's Commissioner for Trade, Albert Muchanga, to unpack how exactly this project is looking to be coordinated. Thanks so much, Albert, for your time this evening. So where are things at as far as this continental free trade area is concerned? What are some of the key elements that were agreed on this week? Well, uh, basically, uh, the, uh, uh, the framework agreement was agreed upon. That's the main agreement that's with the African continental trade area. Then we had the protocol on trade in goods, the protocol and trade in services, and the protocol on dispute settlement. So uh, that, that we have left Albert, Nigerian President Mohamedou Buhari withdrew his participation from the summit, saying that continental aspirations must complement Nigeria's national interests. How much of a spanner in the works does this throw into getting this actually implemented? Because one would assume that you would need buy-in across the board here. Well, the issue is that the message you've gotten from uh, the government of Nigeria is that we still need to undertake some national level consultations 
Then there are other countries which also need to go through the constitutional processes before uh, they are ready to sign. And uh, we are hopeful that uh, all those 11 countries that are through consulting or going through constitutional process will be able to, uh, to sign by July when we have the next summit of the African Union. What are some of the key concerns at this stage? Well, basically the key concerns are that we need further national level consultations and that we need to set the, the, the document through constitutional provisions. So they have to take the, the, the document to the parliament before the president is authorized to sign. Albert, given those concerns, but also at the fact that we're looking at uh, the lack of a stable infrastructure, for example, that would be supportive of Africa's value chain and trade on a regional basis, are we not perhaps putting uh, the cart before the horse on this? No, we are not. Because what we are doing now uh, goes back to a long time ago. Uh, when, we got our independence, when the process of independence started in 1963, if you recall, there was a, a very passionate call from Nkrumah uh, uh, that Africa must unite. And out of that, we started uh, establishing regional economic communities. That's, that's the theory, though, Albert. Practically speaking, how's this agreement going to work in favor of smaller African economies? We've had uh, Moody's point out that economies with better infrastructure and more manufacturing capability, for example, may stand to benefit more than others. Well, uh, I think it, 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 we are going through the regional integration. We're going to have regional value chains. So uh, a lot of countries will be able to undertake value addition activities for the raw materials that they have and be able to export their products either as final products or intermediate goods. And that's what is happening in quite a number of uh, economies. Amidst it all, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa has punted the idea of creating a single homogenous currency uh, for African countries in a bid to attract infrastructure investment and enable the ease of Africa trade on a regional basis. How realistic or viable a solution are we looking at here? Well, the thing is, this, with the creation of a large market of 1.2 billion people, which is expected to be 1.7 billion in, by 2030, will be able to attract a public partner, a public-private partnership in infrastructure development. And when we do that, then we'll make it easier for the movement of goods across the, the continent. So it's very viable. And the, right now, even within Africa and uh, abroad, a lot of pension funds are, are lying idle, looking for viable investment opportunities. But is a single AU currency a viable one? Well, uh, this is too early. This is too early. Uh, that one is going to come at a later stage of uh, economic integrity. From, well, from now, we have to go towards this, uh, the, the, the customs union, which is too, too early. From. So we need to build on the foundations of the, uh, the, the present area. But we are developing a Pan-African payment system, which will make it easier for traders to get paid on time and in form. Well, Albert, let's leave it there. Thanks so much for having joined us on the line this evening. That was Albert Muchanga, who's Commissioner of Trade at the African Union.
Well, in the meantime, African governments are vying to get a bigger share of the mining sector pie. And with that, miners operating in countries like the DRC, Zambia and Tanzania are being squeezed by changes to legislation, which include hefty tax hikes, export duties and a shifting of the goalposts on local ownership. Now, while mining companies are fighting back, the back and forth is leading to policy paralysis and hitting pause on any major investment decisions right now. Claude Bessick, who's managing director at you know, Mix joins me in studio now to unpack whether African governments are at risk of losing out on mining investments altogether in their bid to maximize the benefits of their mineral resources for their populations and whether there is a better way to navigate what has always been pretty tricky terrain. Claude, thanks so much for joining us in studio today. So to what extent are you seeing this trend develop of African mining companies getting squeezed by governments wanting a bigger share of the proceeds more so now than ever before? Look, Alicia, this has been going on for several years. Remember, we would be talking about that um, and um, in the wake of the infamous nationalization debate in South Africa, which started in 2009. Um, it seems to me that the lessons of the past are being lost on African governments and particularly of the governments that you just mentioned. And one has to be somewhat skeptical about the timing of these things, of these radical, somewhat erratic, somewhat unreasonable and probably counterproductive uh, moves in, in terms of growing the mining sector. And, and the timing is elections, the timing is loss of popularity, the timing is electoral uncertainty, the timing is fiscal and budgetary crisis. Mm -hmm. and, and this is really you know, an illustration of what has been called by a number of scholars, you know, um, the resource curse. Um, it's easy target, unfortunately. The mining sector is easy target. The stuff is in the ground, you can't move it. And the mining companies who have invested for right or for wrong uh, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars are easy targets because they can't move their assets, they can't move their profits, they can't walk away from those investments. And so it's very much the prisoner's dilemma in this case. And um, while you know, one can have some sympathy for these mm -hmm. governments um, due to the historical uh, claim that uh, mining was a colonially exploitative sector, which was true, um, one has very much to wonder whether this is really truly productive or not. And the question you ask, what is that going to do to investment credibility? Absolutely. What is that going to do to um, a sense of trust? What is that going to do to uh, economic growth in this country? What kind of impact are you already seeing? Because if we put some of the tactics yeah. that are being used under scrutiny, Zambia uh, stands out front and center this week. It slapped a $7.9 billion tax yeah. assessment on first quantum minerals and says that it plans to audit other mines yeah. in the country as well. Uh, what have you made of that move specifically? Absurd. I mean, $7.8 billion of tax bill uh, is an absurd claim that has likely no basis in facts and no basis in law um, and in any transparent, mm -hmm. uh, functional um, uh, state uh, jurisdictions, you know, will likely be brought down to something that is reasonable assuming that there is a good basis for a tax claim against first quantum. Um, the, the problem is that it is so absurd as to render the whole move uh, suspect. 
and 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 the benefits that could be derived from it far outweigh the cost. I mean, f the cost far outweigh the benefits. Mm. I mean, who's going to invest in Zambia? So, what kind of like drop-off have you been seeing in investment appetite, given all that's been playing out? Whether you're looking at Zambia, the DRC, Mali, Tanzania? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people, you know, who's going to be in their right mind putting money in Tanzania right now, when there is absolutely no certainty on what's going to happen to the sector? Um, you know, I mean, the, 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 the talk of the town is that, you know, these are uninvestable jurisdictions rendered uninvestable by careless governments. I mean, I'm sorry, and this sounds very, very harsh, but, but truly, how is this possibly justified as being good for the country and as being good for the citizens of the country or for the mining sector? Having said that, though, Claude, yeah. I mean, I've had conversations with Mark Bristow, CEO yeah. of Rand Gold Resources, yeah. and the company seems to have quite an amicable relationship up to this point uh, with government. Yeah. Uh, so what's changed? And do you see government actually uh, willing to negotiate with, uh, with the private sector on this? Well, I think these are negotiating moves. I think these are kind of high noon on the on the street and you know and 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 someone has a big gun is going to pull the big gun y you know you could argue well this is good politics or you could argue this is good policy um, and of course the mining companies will negotiate and discuss this because they really have not much choice with the assets and the, and the investments they've made but let's look at Zambia I mean you know, since we talk about Zambia I mean Unomics, we conducted um, uh, cost-benefit analysis many years ago, I don't know if you remember about that, on the, the cost of nationalization back in 1970. You know, again, a very popular move at a particularly sensitive time when, 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 when uh, mineral prices were at all-time high and, and the countries felt that they were not getting their fair share. They nationalized the mining industry at peak production, 700,000 tons mm. they were producing. And the prices went down at that particular moment, but 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 production, you know, of of the copper mining industry in Zambia, tumbled to 230,000 tons. We calculated that the loss of revenue for the country was about 50 billion dollars between 1970 and 2000. Okay, so that's the kind of impact we're yeah. looking at. And given the context yeah. you've outlined, the moves that governments are making come across as underhanded, dictated by greed of another's fortunes, I guess. Uh, there is some merit, though, in the argument that the wealth of the land's resources should be shared. So how yes. should governments be uh, navigating this terrain mm. and approaching things? Well, I think the first basis is to actually start understanding mineral economics. And, and I fear that very few governments actually spend the time necessary. And again, I'm being very harsh because I'm, I'm seeing a lot of that and, and it's becoming a little bit um, despondent. One is becomes despondent, seeing the same cycles over and over. I think there's an overstatement about the value of minerals in the, in the soil in, in, in most jurisdictions. The truth of the matter is that you know, the, the mining sector is not like the oil and gas sector. You know, the oil and gas sector is extremely resilient to changes in prices, and and and, a mine and an oil-rich country will produce billions of dollars in wealth that can then be taxed and redistributed to society. Mining is not the same, and so I think the first problem is a, a complete misunderstanding of how fragile the mining sector is to these kind of moves, because it is a long-term investment industry and it requires long-term policy stability. Absolutely. Well, let's leave it there. Claude, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for having joined us in studio this evening. Of course, uh, Claude Besek is Managing Director at Unomix. And up next, we've got our Markets Roundup with Alikan Satu. So stay with us.
Joining me now on the line from Nairobi with a quick look at what's been dominating some of the market's activity in Kenya this week is Ali Khan Sachu, CEO of Rich Management. Ali Khan, thanks so much for joining us this evening. So this week we've had Kenya Central Bank cut its key benchmark lending rate by 50 po uh, basis points. It now sits at 9.5%. It marks the first cut since September 2016. What have you made of the move and the extent to which this will work to garner growth? So obviously you know, the economy was quite slow last year. We had the trifecta of a drought early in the year. The Groundhog Day around the election, the held election, and, and also the interest rate cap, all of which combined to sort of slam private sector growth close to zero. And the economy has, has been in the slow lane. So I think the central bank was keen to stimulate the economy. The challenge has been that with the rate cap, um, monetary policy transmission has been entirely muddy. Mm. And normally the normal reaction would be to extend credit to the economy. We're not having that cause, cause and effect happening here. So a lot of folks think that the central bank was being preemptive, that they are basically of the view that these rates that the Rate Cap Act will be substantially modified or repealed, and therefore being a little bit ahead of the curve to give the economy a little bit of a boost, notwithstanding these challenges that are which are out there. Ali Khan, it certainly sets up a very interesting environment for uh, the banking sector over in Kenya, where with the rate cap being implemented, uh, the banks shifted focus to government securities and non-funded income to calm uh, the headwinds of that rate cap. So do you see a swift shifting or rotation once more? So you're absolutely correct. What we saw was a stampede into government of Kenya uh, uh, assets, largely because they're treated as risk-free on the balance sheet, um, as opposed to when you then your customer misses a payment and then you've got to take an impairment immediately. So what, what the Rate Cap Act did was stampede people into the government paper market. It created a weak spot for the government at the expense of the rest of the economy who got squeezed, squeezed uh, 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 as a credit. So you're absolutely correct. The question is, how quickly will everyone ever back? And I think uh, what, you know, the, the last 18 months have forced Kenyan banks to make themselves leaner and fitter. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I think we have a situation where some banks are going to pounce on this opportunity and one of them that I would be backing in a big way right now is Equity Bank. Certainly, Equity Bank putting a stellar set of numbers out this week, Ali Khan, with all of its peers having recorded a drop in profitability. It managed a close on 14% growth in a net profit. So what exactly is it doing differently? Well, I must say, James did a pivot very, very quickly the moment the rate cap was announced. Um, he, he basically uh, pivoted into government of Kenya securities. And when you look at, in particular, his NPLs, uh, they're running it significantly below the market average because of that pivot where he re-characterized his balance sheet. So he really reaped a reward for being nimble, for being quick. But I think from what I was, when I was listening to his presentation, he was basically saying that he has firepower. He's done about $2.1 billion. 
and he's ready to put that to work. So I think he's in a really great position. And what really impressed me was growth of the regional businesses. Um, and if you look at that, I mean, the growth rates were, were, were really stellar. And I expect further acceleration in those regional businesses. Well, that seems to be the sentiment across the market, uh, Ali Khan, because we had uh, its share price hit a 12-month high of uh, 53 shillings on the Nairobi bourse this week. What are you making of current valuations? So I think there's still more to run. I think, you know, the equity bank stories about them replicating their market dominance that they have in Kenya across the region. He's a very material leader. I think he's proven he can turn on a dime. And he's got a business which really has now gone very, very digital. <laughs> and interestingly, he owns the digital channels. It's not a partnership game. So I like what I see. I think, you know, we're going to move on from here. We're actually at a 36-month high at this price of 53. We're up about 32% year to date. And I think we've still got further to go. That's but right. I like some of the other banks as well. Barclays, for example, that's up 30%. I think we've gone from a very egregious um, a very skeptical view about Barclays Africa, so a much more optimistic one. That's still got more to go. And the tier one banks have really been performing. The top performing tier two is NIC Bank, which also reported this week, and that's up about 21%. So we see great absolute returns. Yeah. We've got more to go. Ali Khan, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for having joined us on the line this evening. Ali Khan Sachu is Rich uh, Management CEO. Well, that's where we leave things with you for this week, but we'll catch you back here in April at the same time, same place. From me, Alicia Sekum, and the team, it's goodbye for now.